Good morning. Uh, if you've ever listened to Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion, you know that a regular part of the show, this, this was really an illustration for Jeff and Susan, and they're not here. Probably nobody else um, has ever listened to that. But if you've ever listened to it, he does this little piece called News from Lake Wobegon. It's like this fictional hometown that he grew up in. And he always ends it saying it's the place where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average, right? All of them above average. And that's a pretty standard parental response. I actually had uh, a guy come to my house one time with his newborn infant, and it was, you know, like the red shriveled prune stage infant. And he looked up at me with this deep look of concern in his face, and he said, she's just so beautiful that I'm really concerned that she's going to be vain when she gets older. And I was going to start laughing until I realized he was serious. (laughs) And he kept waxing on this for a couple minutes. I was like chewing the inside of my mouth to keep from laughing. Um, Parents do this, but the reality is we all do this. All of us are prone to think more highly of ourselves than we should. We have an inflated view of ourselves. I read um, some research by by a professor over at the University of Colorado, and she found that 90% of the drivers on the road believe they're an above-average driver, 90%. Uh, They've done similar studies with morality broadly, and I think it's 80% of people think they're morally above others. Um, And so we tend to have this high view of ourselves, um, an above-average view of ourselves. This impacts how we relate to other people, and it definitely uh, impacts how we approach God as well. We're going to look at a couple things from this passage. We're going to look at, number one, the reality that we're called to be servants. Number two, that we're commanded servants. Uh, Number three, that we're unworthy servants. But then finally, that there is a worthy servant. One of my favorite theologians, Bob Dylan, put it like this. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. What is he saying? That that we were created to be servants. We like to believe that we're in control. It's not a truth that we embrace that we were created to be servants. There's a a wonderful um, story in Luke 7 where Jesus, uh, it's recounted that a a Roman centurion, this, this Roman soldier, sent somebody to tell Jesus, please come heal my servant. He had a sick servant. And so Jesus starts going. And on the way, he sent another servant to say, you know what, don't worry about coming to my house, just speak a word. He said, I understand how things work, because I'm a man who's under authority, and I have people under me, and I tell a servant, go here, and he does it, and do this, and he does it. All you have to do is speak. And Jesus marvels. He says, I've never seen faith like this in Israel. Um, what, What is Jesus saying? This is a man who understands how the universe works who understands the structure of the universe, that we're created to be servants, that we don't have our own authority, that we live under authority. Um, You know, Jesus kind of sets us up in this parable because he starts it off in in verse 7. He says, well, any of you who has a servant. So he, he meets us where we like to be, in the position of master, right? Think about yourself as the master ruling over the servant. But then he flips it around in the last verse, and there's a little barb at the end, and he says, no, no, no. You need to understand yourself rightly. You are the servant. You are in the place of of being a servant. Now, um, 
This is particularly hard. There, I'm sure there's people here today who are just kind of investigating the Christian faith. You don't really know a lot about Jesus. You don't really understand this. This is something that you really don't like to hear. None of us like to hear this. But we all want to believe that we're autonomous, that we can live however we want, that we don't really have to answer to anyone. Um, this passage is urging us to see that we are answerable for how we live, that we are people who have been created uh, and have to give an account for how we've lived and who we are. Bob Dome was right. you got to serve somebody. And I just want to expand this a little bit because um, even if you don't know Jesus, you know that this is true. Um, think about an instance with people who struggle with addictions. This is an obvious one. Uh, you begin engaging in something because you enjoy it, because there's an amount of pleasure in it, whether it's drugs and alcohol or things I deal with every day like sexuality. But eventually, you find yourself doing things and going places you, you don't want to go. And you realize that what was once something that you enjoyed, something that seemed like it was serving you, you have become a slave to that. Um, addictions are an obvious one. What about your career? I remember seeing a billboard once that said, you're going to spend more time at work than you will with your spouse. Choose wisely. And I just thought, oh, my. Our careers are something that many of us feel is about serving ourselves. And, and we're trying to build up our resume. We're trying to build up our reputation. We're trying to earn money, build a 401K. But what's the reality? Eventually, you, it's not you being served. You are serving a position. You have become part of a machine that is running your life um, and so there's lots of people, incredibly successful, incredibly wealthy, who life isn't working. There isn't joy in what they're doing because they've become a slave to this. Um, we're created to serve. It's the structure of the universe. Think about another one. Um, what about that relationship? Uh, maybe a friendship or maybe a romantic relationship. And initially, this, this relationship was a very sweet thing to you. But over time, it becomes something that begins to control more and more of your heart, and it becomes something that you can't live without. And so if this friendship or this romantic relationship is in danger, you begin to panic because it would be undoing for you to lose this. Um, we are naturally giving our hearts to things that rule over us. The question is, what are you going to give your heart to? Because it is, what it means to be human is to to be someone who was created to be a servant. Um, and so whenever these things that you give your heart to, if, if they're okay, then you're okay. But as soon as they're in jeopardy, you're undone. You know, this is one of the reasons, um, tying it back into where I started with uh, the reality that we want to see ourselves more highly than we ought. This is why when somebody challenges you on something on your life, it can destroy you. It can be so undoing. Um, because our hope is being above average. It's hard to hear otherwise. Uh, one of the, the place where I'm going to end up is that there is a better master for us to serve than some of the things we've been talking about. There's one who desires to bless you. And I want to do something. I don't really do this very often because I know it's kind of clunky to hear a long quote. But C.S. Lewis says in a paragraph what I'm going to say in half an hour, and he says it's so much better. So if you listen really well now, you can just shut me out the rest of the time. This is from his sermon called The Weight of Glory. He says, I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child 
as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only a child either, but even a dog or a horse. The most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures is the specific pleasure of the inferior. The pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. The satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly love and rightly fear. And that's enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is hers by doing. With no taint of what we now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. And this is glorious. Listen, in that moment, it'll heal her old inferiority complex and at the same time forever will also drown her pride. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back. But proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured, never disguised. This is what we were created for. We were created ultimately on that day to have this face turned towards us, to bless and I know, I, lo- I love where Lewis goes because I know that you've experienced this on some level. You remember what it was like to do something that someone in a position of authority over you, a parent if you had a loving parent, or a teacher that you looked up to, or a mentor, someone delighted in something you did, and your heart responded to that. Maybe it even happens a little bit now with work or with someone in your life that you care about when you accomplish a project well and people say, well, that's, that's wonderful. Um, Now, you know, our own desire to climb the ladder can get in there and taint it, but that's what Lewis is getting at. There is something in our hearts that was meant to be praised by one greater than us, that we are indeed a creature before its creator. So that's the first point. It's not a particularly encouraging one. Uh, Yeah, actually, the first three points are not encouraging. I hope the last one will be. Okay, the second point is that we are commanded servants. Um, Now, this might seem a little redundant, but I wanted to um, just make it plain that as servants, we do have a master over us, and he has commanded us. So uh, you, you have to understand the context here. Jesus is speaking to a relatively poor kind of agrarian culture, right? And the term he uses that's translated servant, there's a couple different Greek words that are translated both loosely servant in the New Testament. One of them is diakonos, and that is where we get our word deacon or deaconess from. Um, the word he's using here is doulos. And servant is actually uh, kind of a euphemism. Really, a better translation would be slave. This isn't someone who kind of is employed. Uh, this is someone who's owned. And, and I want to make something clear because I realize that's hugely offensive to us in 21st century America. And, um, you know, particularly if you're someone who's not a Christian, let me make very clear. Jesus is not saying slavery is okay. All right? 
the Bible, you know, lots of anti-abolitionists historically had tried to use the Bible to say there's no prohibitions against it, you know, and they said all kinds of wacky stuff to try to show that the Bible actually is in favor of slavery. The Bible is not in, fla- in favor of slavery. Um, there is clearly a redemptive trajectory to abolish slavery in, in, in the scriptures because uh, the scriptures really settle all these things that we would cause to divide. So the, the Bible teaches that that um, in Christ, there isn't gender, there isn't race, there isn't socioeconomic status. All these things that people have used to divide in the past, Scripture says, no, we are all one in Christ. So that the Bible, um, unlike kind of a, a worldview apart from Scripture, the Bible says every human being has worth because they have been created in the image of God. So there's a reason why Christians like William Wilberforce were at the helm of, of the abolitionist movement to get rid of slavery because really a biblical worldview would get rid of slavery uh, because Jesus' kingdom is all about overturning injustice in this world, freeing the oppressed, establishing right, righteousness and justice. Um, so Jesus is not blessing the institution, but he is trying to come up with a context um, that people would understand. And so what's he saying? He's describing a situation in which there's a landowner who is not a super wealthy landowner. A guy who had a ton of money and had a big estate would basically have field slaves who worked really hard, and then there would be house slaves who just did everything in the house. He's talking about a guy who can only afford one. So this poor guy is responsible for everything, right? So Literally, after slaving in the fields all day, he's got to come in, and what does the what does the master tell him to do? You got to clean yourself up and come in here and feed me dinner now. And don't worry, after I'm fed and my family's fed and everybody's content, we'll see what's left for you, and you can have some too. Um, so, it's a it's a situation in which you know we we need to be careful because all we can see is kind of the injustice of that. But what Jesus is wanting us to see, and, and what would have been so clear in the first century is that it would have been unthinkable for a slave to come sit at the family table. It would have been unthinkable. To sit down with dinner at the, with the family would be basically saying, you're like a member of the family. It was wel- welcoming in and, and making them an equal at the family table. Um, whereas slaves were, and I know this is offensive, but slaves were basically like a really good farm animal. They were smarter, they worked better, maybe not as strong. But that's how they were seen. A slave was expected to perform their job without getting rewarded for it in any way, without getting any kind of commendation, without getting any kind of pat on the back. Um, so let me, this is going to be kind of weak, I just have to admit that, but I was trying to think through, you know, what are some 21st century parallels? Um, I was out to dinner last night, and, you know, I had one of these obnoxious waiters, and I can say this because I used to be an obnoxious waiter, who would come and, like, sit down at the table with you, you know, so imagine a situation, you're on a date, and you place your order with the waiter, and the waiter says, you know, after he takes your order down, he says, you know, I think I'm going to have a steak tonight. And he walks away, and you think, oh, that's a little weird, why, why is he telling us that? And then when he comes back with your food a little while later, he has three plates, and there's his steak. And he's telling your date, slide over and let me have a seat here. Make room. It'd be a crazy situation, Right? It would be completely unexpected. His role is that he's supposed to bring the food to you. He's not supposed to make too much chit-chat, be nice and friendly, but that's about it. Um, so what Jesus is saying, it's kind of like that situation. It'd be like you, you know, the septa bus driver who drove you to church maybe today, 
you know, I think it's cool to say thank you, getting off the bus, have a good day or whatever. Um, but it'd be kind of bizarre if you were like, you know, shaking their hand and just really hugging them. And I can't believe you did this for me. Um, I'm just driving the bus here. You know, like I'm getting paid for this. You know, if they came to your house and like washed the kitchen floor, maybe that'd be one thing because you wouldn't be expecting that. But um, that's the kind of situation that, that Jesus is getting to, that, that um, everybody has a specific role. Now, so the idea is we're commanded servants. There's things we're commanded to do. I'm not going to, you know, perhaps some of you, when this whole passage was read, got really scared because you know I can be long-winded. I'm not going to go through verses 1 through 6, uh, except to just point out a couple things that, that Jesus is calling us to because this context is really important, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, He's saying, number one, that we're going to face temptations. And uh, the ESV gives a little footnote here telling you that, that in the Greek, that word for temptation is actually stumbling blocks. And so it could mean all kinds of things broadly. It could be talking about trials in your life and suffering in your life. Uh, in a parallel passage in Matthew 18, Jesus actually says, it is necessary for these stumbling blocks to come. It's necessary for us to face trials and suffering as his disciples. Then he goes on, and I love how, how Julie mentioned, you know, having so many sin against them. And we're being confronted with this situation of what am I going to do with this, right? Somebody sins against me. And Jesus gives this wild description and says that we're supposed to forgive. We're supposed to forgive people unequivocally. If somebody, you know, sins against you, he says seven times in a day. So again, I mean, a contemporary kind of context. If you're at work and you've got a coworker who comes up to you and is, you know, being really obnoxious, and I'm not talking about just making like snide comments, is like yelling and jeering so that the whole office gets silent and everybody's like, oh my word, right? And just humiliating you. And then 10 minutes later comes kind of slinking back in private and says, uh, I'm kind of sorry about what happened there. If you're having a good day, personally, and you're feeling very gracious, you might be able to forgive them, right? Okay, you know, that kind of sucks, but okay. What if it happens half an hour later? How gracious are you going to be the second time when he slouches back and does that again? I'm sorry, I really, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I'm just having a bad day. What about the third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth time, seventh time? Jesus is saying, if that happens to you seven times in your work day, you're supposed to forgive this person. There's a reason why... In verse 5, after hearing this stuff, the disciples say to him, increase our faith. How in the world are we supposed to do this? Um, Increase our faith. So we're going to keep that off to one side. We're going to come back to that in a minute. So the first point is that we are slaves. The second is that we're we're called to follow a master. Um, But then, where does Jesus conclude in verse 10? He concludes saying we are unworthy servants. You know, I have to be honest. One of the reasons why uh, it's been real encouraging for me to come down here and preach is because, number one, I don't have to talk about sex, which I have to do all the time, usually when I go to churches. And number two, because I'm giving a passage that I would never pick for myself. When I saw this passage, like, this is the week I picked, and this is what Jeff had assigned, I read it, and I emailed him and said, really, Jeff, this passage? That's not really an encouraging word, right? But it actually has been good for me to get into it and, and to wrestle with it. Um, so what, what, is, what, is, what is Jesus saying? We're unworthy servants. Um, Jesus is challenging us to see our relationship with God more clearly. He wants us to understand who we are in relationship to him. Um, as I started off saying, you know, we want to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We want to see ourselves above average. Now, what does that mean? If I'm above average, then that means the majority of you are beneath me what it means. It doesn't sound very pretty, does it? 
But that's what goes on in our hearts. If I'm above average, most of you are beneath me. Um, and the thing is, we that impacts not only how we interact with other people, but it impacts how we interact with God too. What does it mean? We are going to be wanting to come to God on our own merits, on our own works, with doing what we've done. If you, you know, if you're here and you don't know what you think of the Christian faith, I suspect if if somebody asked you, you know. If you believed in heaven, how would you get there? You'd probably say, well, you know, if I looked at my life, I think at the end of the day, if it was weighed out, I would be better than I am bad, right? I, I, you know, my, my good would, out, would outweigh my bad. So I think I'm okay. Jesus is saying something radical here. He's saying everything good about you. When you have, he says in the, in the last verse, when you have done all that you were commanded, you're unworthy. What's he saying? Perfect obedience still doesn't merit any kind of favor. He's saying perfect obedience is actually what is required of you. Because you have a creator who's created you to serve him. And that everything you have, every gift, every talent, every ability, all these things have been given to you. Really, from, from a, a biblical perspective, even your faith is given to you. Even that isn't yours. It's all given to you. There's nothing we can do. What Jesus was trying to get at is the fact that in our hearts, there is a desire to make God our debtor. To somehow, having come in from the field, say, you know what? I have a seat at the table. Where is it? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You don't have a seat at the table. Even if you do everything perfect, There is nothing you can do to merit a seat at the table. Because if you've done everything perfect, all you've done is be who you were created to be. This is not a particularly encouraging word. I did warn you that. Um, And we see this. um, Again, this is kind of a weak example. But in your work situation, if all you do is punch a clock, and you do what is expected of you. You know, you kind of have an idea of what you're supposed to do in your job, and you just kind of do the bare minimum, and you make sure, you know, you're watching your watch, and as soon as that, that second-hand clicks, you're punching the clock again and you're leaving, you know, how's that annual review going to go? Um, are you going to get a raise? Are you going to get promoted? Why do you get promoted at work? Because you excel, right? What you want to hear in your review is he exceeds or she exceeds expectations, If you just meet expectations, you're not going to be rewarded for those things. And with God, uh, we can't really excel. He is our creator, and everything is of grace, and we owe him. We can't make him our debtor. And and so um, this totally goes against the inclination of our hearts. We desperately want to have something to bring to the table. Right? We desperately want to be able to bring something that we can show. Look at me. Look at what I've done. And Jesus is saying that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, I want to apply this practically um, because this is so crucial. And this radically impacts how we're going to interact with other people. And I will speak specifically to, to brothers and sisters in Christ because uh, we have a little bit of a PR problem right now. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed in the greater culture. Um, they seem to think that we think that we're really good moral people. 
and that we, like everybody else, thinks we're above average morally. Um, I really don't think that's a good message for us to be putting out there. I don't think, honestly, that that's the message that Jesus would have us put out there. Uh, If you really get this, this will radically impact how you interact with other people who believe differently than you. It will radically impact how you interact with other people who live in ways that is very different than you. And I'll just use one case study. It'll probably surprise you. I just can't get away from this. Um, how we interact with the gay community will be huge. Um, you can pray for me. The beginning of December, I've been invited to speak to a class at Temple University on issues of homosexuality and kind of a diverse, you know, a a different view of homosexuality. Um, It'll be interesting. I have to start apologizing. I don't know what else I'm going to say, but I know that. (laughs) I'm going to start apologizing because the church has done a horrific job. We've, We've communicated to the gay community that they're worse than us, that what they do is really awful. Um, There's no reflection of a heart who understands that it stands before God with no merit, whose own behaviors, whose own lusts of our hearts are broken, who, that all of us, every single one of us has a sexuality that needs redemption. We don't send those kind of messages to this culture, and it's desperately what we need to do. Um, I really wish that myself included, but all of us lived with this kind of humility before the world that we live in. So Jesus leaves us with this really sober assessment. So you also, when you've done all that you are commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Now, this isn't encouraging, and I hate to say this. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, why? Because we don't do our duty. <laughs> the reality is, he's saying, even if you do everything perfect, you're still unworthy. And can we be honest? We don't do everything perfect. We fail all the time. Look look at just the two examples that Jesus gives that I mentioned earlier, talking about what it means to be a disciple in the earlier verses. He says temptations are going to come. Why is this such a discouraging word? Number one, we hate suffering, understandably. Number two, we fail a lot. When we are tempted, we fail in all kinds of ways. All the time. Number two, he talks about forgiveness. You know, Julie mentioned how hard it is to forgive. Um, I can get really angry when somebody just, like, cuts me off or shoots me the bird driving down the road. You know, I can be, like, stewing for five minutes driving. Small, petty offenses can be hard for me to forgive. And yet, even huge offenses we're called to forgive. Um, It is an order that that we can't, on our own, face... um, and so, in, in the deepest, most profound sense, we're unworthy. If we were perfect, we would still only be doing our duty, but we're not perfect. We're failing all over the place. So we're actually in a far worse place. Um, so I just want to ask you, you know, I, I, it's chilling um, in that C.S. Lewis quote, I think, when he talks about that face being turned towards you. That face that is either going to confer glory or shame. And so I want to ask you, what is your hope? Because that is your reality. And it's kind of independent on whether or not you believe that. It is reality. One day that face will turn towards you. What is your hope when that face is on you? What is your hope? Uh, And my encouragement today would be to let go of the things you would cling to, your record, um, the good things you've done, 
the false hopes that you're clinging to. Because, my last point, this is really crucial, there is a worthy servant. There is a worthy servant who has come. There is one out of all of us who was declared worthy. I love in in Isaiah 53, um, prophesying about Jesus coming, you know, centuries before he came, and it said that he would be a righteous one through whom many would be accounted righteous. What does that mean? Um, It means that we would be counted in him worthy. So what do we see when you look at Jesus? Um, Lots of you, if you you don't have a Bible, I should say this, and and Jeff says this, so I'm not saying it just because he's not here. Y'all are allowed to take these Bibles that are laying around if you don't have one. I would urge you to do that and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. See who this Jesus is because he's radically different. Uh, He says something later in Luke 22. He says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But he says, I am among you as one who serves. And so what do we see when you read the Gospels? We see Jesus radically living as a servant, laying his life down, pouring himself out for other people, um, not thinking of himself, but always thinking of others. And and I love this. This is contrast I love to make because... In Luke 4, elsewhere in the Gospels, it talks about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And so it tells us that he was taken into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. And I don't know if you've ever fasted. I couldn't imagine fasting for 40 days. The Gospel writers just make it really clear. They say he was hungry. After 40 days, he was hungry, in case you didn't figure that out. And and so what happens? The enemy comes and tempts him. And the first temptation is, you know what, you're hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. And he says no. I'm not going to feed myself. I I am going to be fed by my Father. I don't live by bread. I live by every word that comes from him. I'm not going to take care of myself. Now, fast forward a few weeks, and he's he's been doing public ministry for a while, and a bunch of people came, and they're listening to him preach, and there's thousands of people that have come to hear him preach. And presumably they left their house in the morning. They skipped lunch because he was a really good preacher. They were willing to listen to him a lot longer than anybody would be willing to listen to me. And they missed lunch. And he's going to send them home. And he says they're far away from home. Let's feed them. So he himself goes 40 days without food, won't feed himself. He's hanging out with thousands of people who just missed lunch. And what does he do? He produces a feast, this abundant feast. In fact, so abundant that when they gathered up everything left over, there's still a whole other feast left over for everybody. Um, It's a picture of his devotion to pour himself out for other people, to be focused on serving the needs of other people, and yet not taking care of himself. So number one, what do we see in a worthy servant? He serves in all kinds of practical ways. He's very practically a servant. But I want to talk about a couple things that are specific to what we see in this passage, places where we fail. Hebrews 4 tells us, in terms of temptations, that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. That Jesus didn't just kind of go through life, like everything was cool, everything just bounced off him because he was God and it was fine. It tells us he suffered when he was tempted. Temptation was really hard for him. Every, you know, not everybody, but lots of the men I talked to, you know, they kind of brushed it off and say, well, Jesus was God. You know, he was God. How hard was his life really? He was God. We have to hold together. Orthodox Christians have always held together 100% God, 100% human. That meant suffering. Uh, temptation really was suffering. It really was hard for him. But he was without sin. He suffered victoriously for us. So that's how he faced temptations. And what about forgiveness? Um, 
If you read about Jesus in the Gospels, he is going through life so merciful, so tender. Now, he wasn't like some kind of cream puff pushover. He definitely said hard things, and there was a reason why at the end they killed him because he had really made a lot of people angry. But he was merciful and kind and gracious. And even there, in the end, in Isaiah 50, it describes how he was going to be treated, how they were going to tear out his beard, how they were going to spit on him, how they were going to abuse him, but that he was going to respond in love. And what do you see? In the end, Jesus has been beaten to a bloody pulp. He's stripped naked. He's lifted up, and he's being killed. And in the midst of it, he's crying out, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. There's a reason why a Roman centurion standing there said, this is the Son of God. He had never seen anybody die like that. Nobody ever died like that. Nobody ever pleaded for mercy for someone else in the midst of his dying. We have a worthy servant. Now, you could look at this and say, well, after doing all that we commanded, or after all he was commanded, how come he is worthy? How come he's not unworthy if that would be just fulfilling who he's supposed to be? Um, there's a glorious passage in Revelation 5 where John is giving, the Apostle John is giving this vision into the throne room in heaven. And he's weeping because this whole scenario going on with this scroll and there's no one there to open the scroll. And yet then this elder says, no, look to the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered. And John looks and this lion is a lamb. And it's a lamb who was slain. And the whole host of heaven begins to sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You know, Jesus is worthy because his obedience went far beyond just living a righteous life. He was actually willing to die for all the unrighteous, all the unworthy servants. You know, he willingly paid the price for those of us who are constantly failing. And and here's the thing. I love what it says in Revelation 5, that by his blood he ransomed us. What does that mean? I was talking about earlier how all of us have been created to be servants, right? But in Romans it says that if we sin, we become slaves to sin. We make ourselves slaves. We give ourselves over to bondage. What happens when you ransom something? You buy it back. Jesus is worthy because he is the one who purchased us back. We willingly gave ourselves over to another master, and Jesus bought us back. So, amazingly, we're invited in. And, you know, I need to say this because the Christian faith, you know, at first blush is not really flattering to our self-esteem. But here's the thing. It's an invitation to find in him a value and a delight that you can't ever find in yourself. You know, we come from different places, and so some of you today are very aware that you are unworthy, right? And that's what Lewis was getting at, that, that at one stroke, God's approval both gets rid of this sense of insecurity that you may have your whole life, and at the same time, it shatters your pride. It does both simultaneously. So some of you are coming here, and you have a real profound sense of your unworthiness, And the invitation is that you would see this one who loves you, who delights in you, who's lifted up for you, who is worthy, and through his worthiness makes us worthy. Some of us, 
really just want to be able to come because we feel like we've got a pretty good record. My prayer would be that your eyes would be open to see how flawed your record actually is. If it was perfect, it wouldn't be enough. And the reality is it's brutally flawed. Um, He invites us in. And this changes everything. We, We have to let go of the things that we would cling to and just rest in him, but it changes everything. It changes our motivation for obedience. Obedience isn't this striving to try to measure up. It becomes this responsive love to the one who is truly worthy. And the wild thing is, when this is where it's coming from, he does delight in it. And so Jesus talks about on the last day that we'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But it goes even deeper than this. Um, Jesus actually at one point describes it as us laboring in the harvest field, that this life is a call for us to go out and labor in the harvest field. And here's the thing. When we're done laboring, when we're invited into the kingdom, he doesn't just invite us to the table. Luke 12 gives this amazing description. He's, he's talking about servants waiting up for their master, and this is how he concludes. He says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. No human master invites the slave to the table. But we serve a serving king who invites us to the table, who himself cleans us up, seats us down, dresses himself for service, and come and serves. In a minute, we're going to come to the table um, to anticipate what's coming. This table anticipates a feast that's coming, a wedding feast in which the bridegroom is going to dress himself for service to come serve the bride. Listen, the truth is we are unworthy servants, but Jesus makes us worthy. Jesus loves us. He delights in us. With his blood, he ransomed us and invites us to come to this table. Come. Leave your record behind and come feast. Let's pray. Jesus, I praise you that you are the worthy servant. I praise you that you are the one who lived this perfect life, who walked among us as a servant. And it's true, when we read your word, we can't get around from the fact that you look different than anybody we've ever met and that your responses are different than anything we've ever seen and anything that's come out of us. Lord, I thank you that in your kingdom you flip uh, everything we've expected on its head. And that you do, you are now the master who invites the servants to come and sit, that you are the one who will come and serve. Jesus, I pray that we would have a vision of that that would delight our hearts and that would indeed lead us to desire serving you in joy, that would see the life that you offer in obedience, that you are a God who offers abundant life and blessing to us. But I pray that you would meet us now in this meal. In Christ's name, amen.